market square So many mothers sighing News had just come over We had five years left to cry in News guy wept and told us really dying he cried so much his face was wet then I knew he was not lying I heard telephones opera house favorite melodies song boys toys electric irons and TVs a brain hurt like a warehouse it had no room to spare I had to cram so many things to store everything in there and all the fat skinny people and all the tall short people and all the nobody people and all the somebody people I never thought I'd need so many people girl my age went off ahead If the black hadn't have pulled her off I'd think she would have killed them A soldier with a broken arm The stairs to the wheels of a Cadillac Cop knelt and kissed the feet of a priest And the queer threw up inside of that saw you in an ice cream parlor drinking milkshakes cold and long smiling and waving and looking so fine don't think you knew you were in the song and it was cold and it rained so I felt like an actor and I thought of more and I wanted to get back there your face your race the way that
And you're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, today took me a little while to get everyone on air. It's always like that when I have three guests over the phone at once. Uh, so hopefully this all works out. Hopefully I have everyone. My guests this week are Ben Schwartz. Do I got you there, Ben? Yes, I'm here. Excellent. And uh, Jeet here? I'm here. Excellent. And lastly, Gary Groth? I am barely here. You're barely there. All right. Um, you're pretty quiet there, Gary, so I may ask you to be a little louder when you are yakking. Okay. I can't, unfortunately, I can't separate the channels. It all comes through in one line. Yeah, uh, I, can, I can barely hear Ben and G, but I'll just pay attention. <laughs> uh, let's, I've turned up the volume, so hopefully... Maybe, the, uh, I'm not saying anything, so maybe that's <laughs> what it was. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so um, kind of introduce who these guys are. I kind of feel like this is Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm the little kid at the big kid table. Um, ben Schwartz is the editor of the Best American Comics Criticism uh, Anthology, which came out, I guess, about six months ago from Fantagraphics, and it's a collection of, well, I'll let Ben describe it in a second. Uh, Gary Groth is the co-publisher of Fantagraphics, as well as the founder and editor I don't know what type of editor, master editor, top editor, chief editor of uh, the Comics Journal, probably the grounding publication, groundbreaking publication, as far as comics criticisms go, really the first group of folks saying, hey, this is how we do it. And last but not least, a regular friend of the Ink Studs is Jeet here, who, uh, as well as doing introductions to many fine books, has edited two books, uh, Arguing Comics, a collection of, I guess, uh, non-comics writers writing about comics and the comic studies reader which is a great collection of academic work on comics does that sound apropos that's perfectly right yeah and uh, i should say um uh, william buckley used to describe himself as the editor at large of national review which i think could apply to gary at the comics journal he's the editor at large he's sort of escaped (laughs) (laughs) i'll uh i'll more or less accept that (laughs) all right now, Ben, do you want to give a quick rundown on what the Best American Comics Criticism book is? Yeah, it's, I hope, the first of a series of uh, anthologies that collect comics criticism um, uh, from a, a, a number of different say, genres of writing, from history and biography, at least my, if, when I'm editing it, and I assume there would be future editors uh, besides myself, but um, that collects the best in comics writing from a certain period. Um, and this first one collects writing from September of 2000 through 2008, uh, the year I was uh, editing and finishing the book, and uh, I think 2009 when I finished it. And um, it's meant to collect journalism from you know reviews, interviews, uh, the new field sort of, or not a new field, but the more... Uh, the newly commercial field, let's put it that way, of comics history, uh, from a lot of books that have been coming out, biography, and um, it's meant to be sort of a survey of, of a given period of time, uh, uh, critical writing about comics. And I chose September 2000, September 12, 2000, because that's the day that uh, Chris Ware's Jimmy Corrigan and Dan Klaus's David Boring were both released, and myself and other critics uh, like Rick Moody, writing in the New York Times, kind of marked that point when comics took a. Uh, we're sort of speaking of the big kids' table, allowed into the 
literary world, in a sense, of taking very seriously that it was something you couldn't ignore anymore. And um, so I took that point up through the point where I was editing it. And I would hope, you know, as more and more comics writing is done, that it could be an annual book. I mean, that's optimistically what I hope will happen one day. Um, the way you have sort of the, you know, best annual sports writing anthologies or best the best comics anthology mm-hmm. that another publisher does. Um, there's enough being done in, say, in business journalism and uh, short short fiction and uh, other fields where you can do those books every year. And so I'm hoping that will be possible uh, eventually with uh, comics writing. Now, first, I understand, I read somewhere that, um, Gary, you maybe had some reservations of whether or not you could fill a book. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how entirely serious I was when I <laughs> uh, asked Ben if, if, he, if there was enough good criticism in those 10 years to fill a book, but somewhat, yes. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if... Um, you can maybe elaborate on a background as far as what do you see as some of the foundations of modern comics criticism? Well, I don't know. Hmm. You know, I'm not sure there are foundations. Hmm. I mean, I mean, critics today, well, but let me say this. You know, I tend to think that comics criticism is still probably in its infancy. Um, I mean, certainly we ratcheted it up with the Comics Journal, um, probably beginning most aggressively in the 80s. Uh, the journal started under us in 1976, and we, we really started taking criticism seriously, you know, shortly after we started publishing it. Um, but I still tend to think that comics criticism is in its infancy. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, you know, if you look at literary criticism, you could probably say that it really started to kick into gear maybe in the 20s, 30s, 40s of the last century, even though it had been around before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, film criticism, I think, came into its own in the 50s and 60s and 70s of the 20th century, although there had been criticism, obviously, before that. But somehow it reached a kind of critical mass, um, you know, the level of criticism, the, the kinds of people who came in, um, just gave it uh, an enormous weight it hadn't had previously. And that, so far, hasn't happened with comics. And I, th- I, and I, I there's, there's probably a whole bunch of cultural and sociological reasons for that. Um, um, comics criticism started to rise at the same time, criticism generally in the culture was on the decline mm-hmm. um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, criticism, I think, is less central to people's cultural life now than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, so what you have is a lot of disparate critics, many of whom are talking around each other, rather than any core number of critics you know who share who have, who have a who have shared assumptions or, or share, shared um, approaches or values to to how they approach comics 
don't know if that answers your question, but I, th I, I think that ramble. <laughs> I think there's an answer in there. Do you, do you have any responses? Oh, sure. With sure. That? I mean, I think one way of um, getting at what Gary is saying um, is to think about the venues. I think that sort of the literary criticism uh, that Gary is valuing flourished through the small journals like uh, The Dial or Partisan Review or Scrutiny, and then later the sort of film criticism um, also had a great sort of venue uh, in terms of uh, Pauline Kael writing in The New Yorker or Sarah's writing in The Village Voice. Um, and uh, whereas comics criticism has always kind of had a problem of a forum. I mean, for many years, there was a comics, um, a lot of comics criticism came out of the world of fanzine writing, and it had the problems of fan writing. Um, and but some of that was very good. I mean, I'm thinking of people like John Benson or Mike Barrier. And then the Comics Journal um, continued that tradition. But the Comics Journal was the only um, venue for many years, uh, as opposed to film criticism or literary criticism, where you had like a, uh, many competing publications. And now, in a lot of ways, comics criticism flourishes on the internet. And in some ways, comics criticism is the only form of criticism that's coming to its own during the age of the of the web uh, and it sort of has all the problems of web communication mm -hmm. uh, of people you know making disparate posts uh, what, what Gary would talk about about um, people sort of talking past each other uh, people um, pursuing their obsessions for better or worse at great length uh, and, and so so in some ways um, uh, what we have to acknowledge about comics criticism is that it's a late-born criticism and that it really exists in this milieu of the Internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And, and, and that comes with all the, the pluses and minuses of the Internet itself. That's right, yeah. I want to get into that a little later because there's some specific Internet stuff that I'm having challenges with as far as it is criticism. Um, I guess what I want, I'm curious about is kind of what is the definition of criticism um, specifically been in mind when you put this anthology together, you have different outlets that you kind of lump together all as criticism. Yeah, I would say for me it's more a definition of critical thinking because, um, you know, as I said, I find it in, in uh, histories of, of uh, cartooning like David Haydu's book on the Ten Cent Plague. I mean, he had um, or biographies where you have to study the person's. I like uh, the person's the, the cartoonist's life because you have to put things in context. If you're going to write those stories, you have to create um, an aesthetic com context that the work came out of or that was react that it was reacting to at a certain time. And so, to me, even you know, those are not traditionally thought of as criticism, but I was getting a lot of critical insight out of them from those writers. And again, I say critical thinking when someone is, um, when a writer, um, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be a writer in a sense. I mean, I have a transcript of Alan Moore talking about Steve Ditko in the book. Because mm -hmm. What he's saying is, is in the function of a critic in that you are, uh, he's, He's, his point of view is getting is getting you to engage in the work, which is the main thing about criticism for me. The critic helps you engage in the work in a way you weren't doing it before. Uh, for me, that's a big part of what criticism is. It's why I can't stand, um, you know, the kind of thumbs up, thumbs down kind of criticism. 
because it, that, that's what it's called. It's called criticism, but it's really it's just someone's opinion. Which is interesting. You know, I like it, I don't like it. And that, that doesn't help me engage the work, but uh, context does, uh, a knowledge of the subject does, and making me aware of, of the art in ways, maybe things I hadn't noticed before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, flaws or strengths or subtleties in it that I, you know, overlooked or that I took for granted that someone can illuminate for me. So for me, it's, it's, it's the critic for me kind of is a, a go, uh, an in-between, a go-between between the art and the, the reader, the spectator, and, you know, bringing a greater enjoyment out of it for you, or, or less enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always important. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, I see. I would just say what you talked about the comic show. That was one of the things about the comic show that was frustrating for me when I was younger. Is I would read it, and they were always trashing stuff that I liked, and, and then eventually I had to come to agree with some of it. So, <laughs> it's, is it kind of a, an, a lens to understand work? Yeah, it's a, it's a, yes, it's <laughs> looking through a lens. You're, you know, you're sort of borrowing from someone else for a little while. Can I add to that? Because I think the important distinction here is between entertainment and art. That entertainment is stuff that people just want to enjoy on a purely visceral level without thought. And it could be like, you know, anything. It could be like a video game or, um, uh, and art is entertainment with something extra. It's, it's entertainment with a level of either personal engagement or um, uh, sort of spiritual depth or an intellectual depth. And I think one reason why comics criticism has taken such a long time to come into being is that for many decades, comics were just considered entertainment and not art. And that if comics are an art, then you need critics. You need uh, th- that's where the role of the critics come in because the critic is the uh, the person that engage tries to engage um, in the uh, work of art, not just on the level of pure entertainment, but on the level of the the extra spiritual or cognitive le- um, level that art has to offer. I think that's a good answer. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd also like to add to that that with regard to entertainment, there are no meaningful objectifiable standards. And I think that's a distinction that you have to make when you apply criticism to entertainment versus art. Mm-hmm. It's the, the application of standards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that to me is where you get into the just, you know, I like it, I don't like it uh, kind of reviews and criticism you see on, you know, all and, of, you and, know, and, and when you look at art as entertainment, that, you know, um, the, the thumbs up, thumbs down approach is perfectly valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, it's kind of what you're talking about. It, in one part, it sounds a bit like review work, um, but the book is very much not focused on review work, but it's kind of a wide net of different kinds of types of analysis. Well, it's that, as uh, Jeet said that, or no, you said, the lens. I mean, mm-hmm. wherever you find it, and that that's what I was looking for. I was actually it's something that Gary said that there is kind of in its infancy. Infancy. Uh, when I was putting the book together, I didn't have a model of any kind of comics criticism anthology in mind. I mean, there are some, you know, like collections of interviews with cartoonists, and um, there are some uh, books out there that are sort of uh, 
like there's a new one on Chris Ware of, of essays and criticism about Chris and his work. But there wasn't anything so much like what I wanted to do. I was looking towards more music and film anthologies of criticism uh, for the kind of book I wanted because it just uh, it hadn't been done yet in, in comics. So, I, I mean, it, it's as far as the definition of what comics criticism is, if there's a specific definition for that, I think it's, yeah, it's still evolving. And I guess there's something said that it's a specifically different type of book than, say, the two that Jeet had put together, which are more academic-type books. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you mentioned about the reviews. There, there are reviews in it, but I specifically wanted reviews that kind of went, went beyond uh, the opinion part of it, the, uh, the, uh, the entertainment part of it. You know, I, um, Like John Hodgman wrote about uh, Why the Last Man and... Uh, the Age of Bronze and right, Age of Bronze, and it was within the context of Jack Kirby's uh, Fourth World comics, and mm-hmm. a, new, um, a sort of biography or art of Jack Kirby book that Mark Evanier put out, um, sort of a prelude to his bigger Kirby book, his bigger Kirby biography, which everyone's waiting for. Um, <laughs> but you know what? What John was doing was talking about how Kirby had introduced epic literature, the concept of doing epic comics in the traditional sense you know, Homer and um, Gilgamesh and everything like that. You know, he, Kirby had always been interested in that kind of mythic storytelling, I mean, or to say always, but at least from Thor and using those myths, and now he was really taking it beyond that to beyond the sort of uh, uh, spectacular supernatural stuff to uh, in, a, in a literary sense. And so that's what John was talking about in his review, and so the review goes, it goes beyond just being uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, but yeah, I didn't want to focus on reviews completely at all. Well, interviews are a substantive part of it mm-hmm. as well, and I'm curious about that inclusion because that's well, been a, an, an issue of uh, a wee bit of debate online in, in various circles. Mm-hmm. Well, again, to me, it's the critical thinking part, and I kind of defer this to Gary in a ways because he, you know, is, you you can't write about comics history. Um, in the last 30, 40 years or, or longer, considering the, the number of people he's interviewed, from you know, like Schultz and Gil Kane and all sorts of people whose careers predate the Comics Journal and you know Will Eisner go back to the sort of the, the beginnings of comics. Um, you get a lot out of what these people are thinking, mm-hmm. and, or what Gary's asking them, and so the interview itself does become that critical illumination. Um, so it's that critical thinking is in there for coming from Gary and then coming from the subject. And not just Gary, but the other people whose interviews were included. But so I do learn a lot uh, critically from, you know, critical understanding from those, even though they may also just go into a topic of how the person inks or, uh, in, you know, in, in you know, what kind of brushes they used or what kind of board it was done on, and that, and that kind of historical detail that also comes in interviews. But um, I think the Will Alder uh, interview is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. He does he does both. He's explaining how, well, and I, again, that's Gary's interview, so, um, you know, why that's criticism to me is like why I just said, but... Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Can I just add a point to this? Because I had something, um, and I, I actually mentioned Robin's own book uh, <laughs> about Ingstad's interviews, which I, I wrote the introduction for. And I, I talk a little bit about, in that introduction, about the importance of interviews in the sort of critical history of comics, that um, precisely because, for reasons we've discussed, the um, comics criticism has been so poor and so lacking that a lot of the best discussions of comics have come from the cartoonists themselves and through the interviews. And there's been, uh, throughout the history of comics, a whole series of very crucial interviews, uh, arguably going back to an uh, interview Gil Kane did in the mid-60s, which have really been the spark for critical discussion. Uh, and so these interviews are not um, like sort of fan writing of, you know, uh, where you where you were born and why are you so great. These are in, um, the best comics interviews are the ones where the creator uh, engages with their art form. And I think that's, uh, for better or worse, that's been a very rich source of uh, critical thinking in comics. Uh, and I, I know there's... Um, uh, the Gil Kane interviews uh, that Gary did, I think, really stand out for that. And I'm, I'm, I'm under the understanding that there will actually be a book of those interviews in the yeah, future. And, and, and the, um, the collection of Gil Kane's interviews will include the alter ego interview that John Benson did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with Jeet. Um, you know, due to, and, and Jeet can, 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 um, can go on about this too, but due to the sort of idiosyncratic nature of comics' place in the cultural landscape throughout the years, so much of critical thinking that has gone on has appeared in interviews and not in criticism per se. Um, you know, and I think that's a significant, I don't know, component in the history of comics criticism. It's, and it's probably unlike any other form, really. I guess there's a, some interesting, like, it's the chance for these creative voices to kind of speak their mind without having it being interpreted through the work, but just being able to clearly state. Well, I mean, you know, there were a number of artists, and, and Gil Kane might have been, well, I think was unquestionably foremost among them in his generation, uh, who thought critically about comics, but didn't put that critical thought on paper, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Um, I mean, Gil wasn't really a, a prose writer, per se, and there was no place to put it. Um, you know, he actually co-wrote a, a, a piece on comics. I think he co-wrote it with Bern Hogarth for um, the Harvard um, a Harvard magazine about comics, maybe late 60s, early 70s, but he didn't write that much, but he thought a lot and he talked a lot. And, um, and you know, that was incredibly valuable. Um, you, can't, you can't underestimate just how significant the interview he did, I think it was in 1968, if I remember correctly, how significant that interview was. Because it, was it was the first time that most of us had actually seen somebody or read somebody talking about comics in that way. I mean, it just, it just blew people away. Um, I mean, that's almost the beginning of, 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 of criticism. I mean, even though there's obviously a lot of disparate um, criticism of comics before that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the fan culture, in terms of you know people like me who grew up through it um, and were were influenced by it. Well, there's it like um, it's engaging it for what it is. Where you talk about the disparate one, which I would presume is the Wortham work, um, where it's not really engaging it for the comics, but engaging it for the 
the context that the comics supposedly created. Yeah, well, I, I was talking more about you know these these the fanzines. Uh, you know these these occasional pieces by Seldis uh, or um, you know E the E Cummings essay on Crazy Cat. I mean, um, you know, a number of of critics, usually literary critics um, or cultural critics, wrote about comics, but it was just you know on an occasional and sort of eccentric basis. Um, which which uh, which he, um collected into one of his books very helpfully. The arguing comics. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, actually, I want to yeah pick up on that point because I think that's the exact difference between the earlier 20th century stuff that I that was in arguing comics, um, which is basically literary people, Dorothy Parker or E. E. Cummings, writing about comics from a literary point of view and sometimes making really great points. Whereas Gil Kane. Um, you know, whatever you want to say about his art, he was a visual artist. And when he was analyzing Kirby, he was analyzing it as one artist, a visual artist, analyzing another visual artist. And that's what Kane and these other um, cartoonists who were being interviewed brought to the table, that they weren't yeah. just looking at comics from a literary point of view, yeah. but looking at someone like Jack Kirby and saying, like, you know, how does he compose that page? Yeah, uh, yeah. What's the dy- uh, dynamic uh, quality that he's bringing to comics? Yeah, yeah. He, he he drilled down, and he appreciated the cartooning idiom in a way that so many of the other, you know, those other guys, as good as they were, did not, and just could not at that time. I'm going to do a quick song break. Um, let's give you guys a little breathing break. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be back in about three and a half minutes. All right. This is Ink Sets, CITR, 101.9 FM. Thank you. 
shapeless fears. Who can live in the modern world without catching his share of them? I hope I've landed on my feet this time. Need a place to rent? Have a place for rent? AMS Rents Line can help. AMS Rents Line is an easy-to-operate, touch-tone, and web-based system that connects thousands of landlords with UBC students looking for off-campus housing. UBC students can search the ads for free or place a two-week posting for $5. To view current listings, visit www.amsrentsline.com. And we're back, Ink Studs, CITR 101.9 FM. A um, couple of quick announcements. Uh, the next couple of shows at 3 o'clock, we have Japanese Music West at 3.30, French Connection, uh, 5 p.m. Native Solidarity News, and more throughout the evening. Six, 6 o'clock, are you aware, with Christian Fleur. Um, just a little shameless self-promotion, the Ink Studs book. I'm doing a little launch at Blim on 115 East Pender Street uh, between Maine and Columbia on Saturday night, and it will be out in stores on Wednesday next week. Sorry to talk about myself there, gentlemen. Um, This week, right now, I'm talking to uh, Ben Schwartz, Jeet here, and last but not least, Gary Groth, about the best American comics criticism, not just the book itself, but also, I guess, the concept of criticism within the context of comics. Does that sound right? Yes, it's good. Actually, can I, uh, Robin, I want to see if I could follow up on something Gary had said before the break. Yeah. Um, about the, Gary, about the Gil Kane interview you were talking about that was so sort right. of a revelation to everybody when it came out, was that specifically because of the kind of work he was doing, sort of the mainstream work of, of Green Lantern and superheroes that you saw here was a person working, you know, in that sort of, uh, factory system, and yet had this incredibly, you know, nuanced view of comics. I mean, was it part of the work he did that surprised you about how he thought about comics? No, um, you know, the place he had gave him a certain status. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was regarded as one of the, the great craftsmen of comics in, in, in the uh, Silver Age. You know, he was up there with Joe Kubert and Carmine Infantino, mm-hmm. and you know, and, 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 a, and a couple of others. Um, so that gave him, you know, a certain stature, but it was really what he said and, and how he said it. I mean, if, uh, you know, if, if Jerry Grandinetti gave the same interview, I can't say it would have the same effect exactly, but, um, but it really was what he, you know, what he said and how he talked about comics. Um, it, was, it was exciting. It made comics exciting to hear someone talk about them like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the purposes of criticism, which is to make the art form itself exciting, to make that particular piece of art the critic is talking about exciting, and to make you excited about even the possibilities of art. Um, Which, again, you can't do if you're criticizing something on the basis of entertainment. Um, It makes, you know, in a way it makes it more significant. more important to your life to talk about comics in that way, and and and, you know, and they were obviously, you know, comics were an important part of Gill's life. Um, he thought about them a lot. He cared about them a lot, um, and he regarded them in the same way that he regarded literature, or films. Um, didn't condescend to comics, um, and most of his peers. And that was very unusual at the time, and certainly unusual among his 
volunteers who you know basically regarded comics as a job or a craft and he just took that several steps beyond that now i just i'm curious um you talk about making excited and i'm just wondering what the balance between excited and ostracizing is um because there is Hmm. you know and i'm gonna blunt on the comics journal the hooded utilitarian um which i find like i want to stab myself in the eyes when i look at it um just to be blunt um and i'm wondering how is that type of thing making people excited about comics unfortunately you're posing that question to me (laughs) or to anyone (laughs) Well, as I, I mentioned recently, I quit reading it in, like, 2007. Okay. Um, so my eyes are better. They're feeling much better. Well, but maybe I can step in here. I, mean, I, I I'm not sure if we want to address the hooded utilitarian question per se, but, I mean, I think there is a type of criticism that is very harsh, um, but which actually also makes you excited about the medium. And I think uh, Ben mentioned this, like, the sort of comics journal in the 1980s was a magazine devoted to comics at a time when the vast majority of comics uh, being published were uh, superhero comics. Mm -hmm. And it was very hostile to that genre. Uh, But it was actually a very exciting (laughs) magazine to read. And it made you excited about the potential of comics. And there was something very interesting about like taking the work of an an artist like Frank Miller that everyone was celebrating and showing like um, the limits of it. Uh, Because I, I think um, you know, there's, there's that phrase uh, from The Economist, uh, Schumpeter, creative destruction. There, there's a way in which there's a type of destructive criticism that's very exhilarating because it destroys something to create the possibility for better work to, c- come, to come into being. Um, now, I, I think maybe the only thing I'll say about the hooded utilitarianism is that I think that they take up some of the rhetoric uh, that Gary and Kim Thompson had in the 80s without the intelligence. Um, uh, and in some ways, it's sort of people trying to be like Gary Groth, um, but without uh, having the critical skills uh, to actually um, do the job right. I think recently I said of, of one of the writers that um, I personally, you know, I learned from counterintuitive thinking, but the key word is intuitive. Mm-hmm. You know, which is, I think, just what Jeep was saying. It's just, um, you know, I, Jeep mentioned zines and, and the kind of critical writing that comes out of them earlier. I read a lot of, uh, not so many comic zines, actually, a lot more music zines, punk rock zines, and there's a lot of that kind of writing. Um, but some of it is really insightful, and I think one of the exhilarating things is when it gives you a vocabulary for why something is wrong. Sometimes <laughs> you are... Uh, you know, overwhelmed uh, in the pop culture by, let's say, whatever the whatever the big hit movie is, or, um, and I, I I'll use Jonathan Franzen's book Freedom, even though I haven't read it, and I know that isn't really stopping anybody from or wasn't from talking about it, but in that when something comes out and it has all this attention and the whole world seems focused on it, and in, assuming you have read the book or you have seen the movie, and you 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 didn't feel part of it. Uh, but you didn't know why. Sometimes somebody comes along and explains exactly why, and you go, "That's it," you know. And and that, and if it gets you, sometimes negative criticism, um, it gets it. If for, like Pauline Kael forced you to take sides a lot of times mm-hmm. in her writing, and I think that's exciting too because you you it creates this dialogue, or or it 
uh, it frames an argument that you didn't know was there. And um, those things can be very helpful. Um, and there's a certain entertainment value as well. I mean, I'm thinking here of James Gould. I've um, Dwight McDonald, uh, Gary's old favorite, writing about James Gould Cousin, a completely devastating review of, of a huge bestseller, but which is like so entertaining. Yeah. Um, uh, or you know, Mark Twain writing about uh, Fenimore Cooper. Um, so, yeah. so, so, I mean, there's a way in which sort of criticism as a blood sport. Um, has entertainment value, but I think it's always in, it, it, the best of that sort of criticism is always uh, enlightening as well. Like it, it, it forces yeah. you into a deeper engagement with the work, oh, yeah. if only well, to see what's wrong with it. Uh, okay, I need one of you guys. Oh, okay. Good. Gary, then Ben. I was just going to say, Dwight McDonald on, on Billy Wilder, and it, you know, and, and a critic of his at his level can do that and give you something to grapple with, even if you don't agree with it. Um, I mean, I th that's almost the test of a critic, that if you don't agree with it, can you still respect it? I mean, is it so intellectually grounded that you can respect it, wrestle with it, and come to your own conclusions? Ben? I was just uh, going to add on to what Jeet was saying, too, about um, uh, Mencken. I read, I'm reading some H.L. Mencken right now. They just came out with two editions of his Prejudices books. And, um, you know, it, again, it's agree or disagree, but he is so entertaining and his style is so entertaining that... Um, and, so, and so dangerous. Go along for the ride with him, even though it's somebody like maybe a novelist, I think it's like James Cabell, uh, who's mm -hmm. a big favorite of his. I've never read anything of his. I've never heard anybody talk about having just read something of Cabell's or Joseph Cabell. I, mean, I can't remember the name now. But um, when he writes about him, his his essay about him is probably going to be more entertaining than what's actually there for me. Um, so, yeah, and he hearing him discuss Mark Twain in, in a point in literary history when Twain was so revered, and Mencken just kind of referring to him as kind of a, um, uh, a provincial boob in a lot of ways. And I've never heard, I, until I'd read Mencken, I never really heard anybody talk about Mark Twain that way. And, um, yeah, have, you know, so someone, someone like Mencken is, is, is... To is, add on to you know, the limitations of something, I think what Jeet was saying about Frank Miller, to see some limitations in something maybe you thought that was perfect before. Gary, did you want to... Yeah, I was, I was just going to say that, um, you know, Mencken is great, and, um, and uh, he's also so dangerous because he's so seductive when you read him you want to suddenly write like him mm -hmm. um, in fact there was uh, there was a right-wing idiot who basically adopted his entire style to right-wing polemics called r emmett tyrell yeah you, you know r emmett tyrell jr yeah um you know he was sort of like the noah berlatsky of right-wing politics <laughs> and he adapted this you know he adapted mencken's approach superficially um, and just wrote these half bright you know polemics um, so you know so a stylist that's that powerful is you know is, is sort of a brilliant icon but so incredibly dangerous <laughs> from, uh, from that other point of view it's interesting to think that uh, criticizing could be dangerous um, well, it ought to be but um, usually it's just it's not often enough Right, right. Not in the right way, anyway. No. 
the, uh, you can set you can set people on a way of thinking about something too for a long time. I mean these uh, these things set precedents, and um, I mean that's one of the reasons the revisionists can be so interesting and entertaining. But um, there is some danger, I think. I mean, of you know damaging work or limiting it. Um, I've been reading about Herman Melville lately and the obscurity he lived in basically during his lifetime until the 1920s, and the critics of his era just loathed him, a, a lot of what he did. And um, he, because he didn't think along their lines, they assumed that his work was terrible rather than it was just somebody who disagreed with them. So, I mean, I try to take that into account when I'm writing something that... Uh, you know, when is it something that I'm just not that engaged in or something that I just am not, uh, maybe just isn't for me versus something I feel you really need to make, that I need to make some sort of statement about because it, you know, it, it's offensive or it's, uh, into my mind or my aesthetic or it's just, you know, wrong or doing some kind of damage. Don't you think we almost have the opposite problem today, which is that, um, I mean, you, you you virtually can't find an artist that isn't being championed somewhere. Mm -hmm. Too few artists are obscure, in a way. Um, I, mean, I think that's generally true. That's like, um, it, it's very hard to find someone who's completely obscure, not celebrated. But I think that there are, there are a few people out there that I would like to see someone champion in an intelligent way. I'm thinking that someone like Mark Baer might benefit from a, you know, a really good critical essay. Or Dave uh, Collier. Or Collier, Collier is a, another excellent example. Or even Kim Deitch. Although I know, um, the, in the recent uh, uh, book that Fantagraphics published, there was a very good essay at the beginning. But I mean, mm -hmm. I think someone like Kim Deitch, his work is great, and there are people who love it. But I think there are a lot of people that are turned off by it. And I think it would be really useful to have a critic that could like sort of pinpoint what it is um, that makes Kim's work. Uh, so great, and then maybe win over people. I'd like to see something on uh, on Deitch's work in the same kind of vein as uh, Ken yeah. Perrell's uh, article oh, on Dan Klaus. Yeah, both Donald Phelps and Gary Giddens have written um, eloquently about Kim. One thing you mentioned earlier is uh, revisionism. Um, I think it was Ben that just mentioned the phrase, and I'm, it, I get the feeling from this most of the work. Um, in the comics criticism that's not the interviews is really looking contemporary of what's going on then except for the the excerpts which are um you know parts from books on the specific history books is that something in mind to like make sure that these are modern lens on modern works for me yeah yeah um I don't, I, i'm not sure if it's it's sort of like the modern world type of lens i wanted but that uh, except in like the case of Harriman, where Sarah Boxer wrote this great essay, and there's going to be a great book. Or I assume it'll be a great book because uh, Michael Tisserand's a pretty good writer on George Harriman coming out. But the fact that George Harriman was uh, Creole, he was African mm -hmm. American, and that was something relatively unknown until the late 1990s. So, in that sense, you know, you, you take a modern view of race in America and you know, what his work meant when, then and now. Uh, but what I was looking at more was sort of the new literary aesthetic, or new to a lot of people, that is out there now, and how it is, I think, is one of the big reasons that, for instance, Frank King has been revived, and with Jeet and Chris Ware have been so involved with, and Joe Matt, mm -hmm. and, 
in his collection of Frank King comics, and a new appreciation for that. Um, Jeet's also been writing a lot about Harold Gray, and um, suddenly these people are viewed as writers to be read as much as they are artists to be viewed. And that aesthetic changes things. And so I wanted um, the, the changing sort of critical uh, estimations of people like Will Eisner, who I personally don't believe holds up so well in the literary aesthetic. Um, I think visually he is a virtuoso. Uh, but I think there, you know, I can flip through his comics and just see amazing sequences and just completely innovative ways of looking at things, especially for the time he was drawing, the different periods. But, mm-hmm. liter- you know, so the literary aesthetic... The heavy-handedness? I'm sorry? The heavy-handedness? Yeah, I don't think it helps him, in a sense, but it has definitely changed the way I look at Harold Gray, mm-hmm. and it's changed the way I look at... Um, I don't know, well, again, I'll go to John Hodgman's essay on, on Kirby. I, I, I hadn't thought of him that way, in this sort of literary epic sense. And so I, I see them in a new way, and um, that aesthetic is, I think, pretty fresh for a lot of people. So in that sense, yes, uh, but not in, a, not in sort of a modern lens like um, of, of current trends and things, mm-hmm. but, um, or current, not so much current politics in, in, in that sense, although there are the uh, comics that Bob Fiore wrote about with 911 and how comics dealt with that issue. I had a challenge with that article. You had, I'm sorry? I had a challenge with it. I don't know. Something about it bothered me. I don't know quite what it was to stick my finger on. You mean that it was, well, it's unique in the book in that it's one of the few things that's really dealing with a contemporary issue, mm-hmm. specifically a contemporary historical issue. Um, so, but it was such a major event and changed the whole world, at least for America, in that time that, and that comics did definitely react to it, but not always so well. Yeah. But which, what do you say, a challenge? I mean, he, he took two pieces that he had done and then added a sort of epistle at the end. I don't, I, I guess it's just some of the views I didn't agree with. Um, I don't, I didn't really make elaborate notes on it. Of whatnot, oh, okay. I, th- I think it was some of the views I didn't agree with. I, I felt he was pretty heavy. I already said heavy-handed. But I'm going to use it again. I felt some of his stuff was pretty heavy-handed as far as what he's writing. Um, well, Bob engages you in a lot of ways when he writes. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I think maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, uh, to say something on behalf of that essay, I mean, I think Bob Fiore is one of the great essayists in mm-hmm. comics writing, and he, he and I was happy to see something by him in there. Uh, I mean, I think his essays are things that I, I go back to often, and we read, and he he does at his best sort of really construct um, uh, these works that like have a lot of internal arguments within themselves uh, in a very fruitful way. And I maybe think Don, Donald Phelps is the same way. Maybe that's a strength to it, is that I want to argue with it. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, but to go back to the revision is a question. I mean, I think one thing is that we always view the past through the eyes of the present, and especially through the art, we view the art of the past through the eyes of present art. I mean, there's a way in which, um, because of modernism and T.S. Eliot, we, we, we reread the poets of the past, like Shakespeare and Dunn, differently, uh, because we have a different set of literary values. And I think the sort of very strong literary comics of the last two decades of Chris Ware and Seth and, you know, the people we're all familiar with, mm-hmm. Spiegelman, 
um, they've caused us to go back and look at the history of comics differently and to appreciate uh, people like Frank King uh, and um, other artists with a new set of eyes uh, and also perhaps to um, depreciate certain artists. I mean, I think there's a way in which considering what can be accomplished through literary comics, um, the stuff that Eisner did that might have impressed people in the 70s doesn't look so great now. Um, uh, and, and then I, I think that, um, I'm trying to think, aside from Eisner, who else has sort of been downgraded? Like, I can't think of too many other reputations that have gone downward. I think, I think Spiegelman has for a lot of folks. Hmm. Um, maybe it's just a lack of um, follow-up. Are you referring to Mao's or just the fact that uh, he hasn't done anything quite as monumental as Mao's? I, I think um, kind of, it, it's not Mao's. I think Mao's sticks by itself as, you know, it, it's there. I think it, it's the follow-up work, the two towers, um, or in the shadow, no towers. I mm-hmm. think I, I think um, people don't speak with uh, speaking with the same reverence as they would have in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know. oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of uh, well, I mean, I think the breakdowns work really holds up, and I think it's especially interesting because it's been so influential in terms of the whole tradition of comics formalism mm-hmm. that came in the wake of breakdowns. I mean, uh, that we now see people like Richard McGuire and Chris Ware and, but and I many of the cartoonists. I kind of feel with breakdowns, um, it came out at the wrong time, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm not too sure. Like, it, it didn't seem to have as much as an impact when it came out than it, it probably should have. Hmm. You, you mean last year? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's, so it was work done in the... In the 70s. 70s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I love it. Um, I just think that... Um, it's kind of gets lost in with all the other great books that are coming out at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of great books coming out, and it's hard. I mean, I could mention a lot of books. I mean, yeah. the Pinky Brown book, uh, Jack Survives, you know, the recent reissues of those books didn't get the attention that I would have liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're both, you know, fantastic yeah. collections. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I think in terms of breakdowns, I mean, I think the one thing is, though, that now we can see the breakdowns is not just a sort of, you know, something art farting around in the 70s and doing yeah. curious things, we can see that it's actually part of a tradition and a very rich tradition of formalist experimentation. Um, and I guess in some ways, I mean, art kind of created his own uh, um, successors by the way he edited Raw. But I mean, I think it's also the case that uh, comics formalism is a very vital thing. And I think Breakdowns, in some ways, is probably as important a book as most uh, Mm-hmm. I think we can defend Art Spiegelman, uh, but it still doesn't change the the perception, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I think, know, well, also you have. I think Bob Fiore pointed out something really valuable about Art, which is that Mao's was never the rule of his career; it was the exception. Mm-hmm. If you look at what leads up to it and what comes after, that's more consistent, I think. And then Mao's, uh, you know, became the monumental book that it is. And it's and he quotes that as being the monkey on his back in. Uh, breakdowns in the in his new strip yeah i mean it, when you when you're first known for something that uh that important uh it is a monkey i mean like arthur miller never got out from under the shadow of death of a salesman no matter what he did i'm mm-hmm. um, even marrying marilyn Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i i need to cut us off guys we're, we're past the hour and i need i have another show that needs to go on oh okay i'm sorry to 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 do that um any last quick comments 
No. Uh, we should buy Ben's book. <laughs> buy Ben's book. Uh, best American Comics Criticism from the fine folks of Fanagraphics with a fine cover by the always excellent Drew Friedman. Thank you so much. Cheat here, Ben Schwartz, and Gary Roth. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. Thanks. Okay. Bye, guys. Um, we're, yeah, sorry that we're over time and we probably could have gone for another half hour. Those guys are great talkers and I really enjoy doing that. Uh, up next, uh, Japanese Music West. And, uh, don't forget this third or this Saturday, um, at Blim 115 East Pender, Inksets Book Launch. I'm very excited and it'll be out in comic stores in a week. Bye bye.